Thank you, Waz. The way Waz and I have um, divided this is she has just covered genocide. I'm going to look at ethnocide or cultural genocide, particularly the uh, Indian boarding schools. And then Waz is going to discuss ecocide, environmental destruction. And then I will finish talking about land theft and land return. So that's basically what we're talking about this morning. So regarding uh, the Indian boarding schools, well, the general pattern is these were government and church-run boarding schools for indigenous youth that were purposefully about assimilation into American society and the purposeful destruction of native language, spiritualities, names, dress, way of life, basically what you talked about. It's the continuation of genocide that has often been called uh, cultural genocide or ethnocide. First day that someone arrived, like this picture here, European dress, European name. Oh, I'm on the wrong one. So next one. This map shows battles, massacres, forts during what were called the Indian Wars or the wars between the U.S. government and indigenous nations. Part of the purpose of the boarding schools had a, a military strategy from the U.S. government perspective. The intention was the forced assimilation of the indigenous population and taking away, um, why is this not coming up here? Okay, Jonathan. There was an intentional effort to take away the children 
from the uh, indigenous nations that were most recently hostile. In other words, to take the children hostage so those communities would be pacified. There's a military strategy behind the boarding schools. Next one. And then the first Indian boarding school, this was an on-reservation boarding school, was right here in the state of Washington on the Yakima Reservation. Um, the goal was to eradicate all vestiges of indigenous culture and to assimilate Indian children into the American way of life. So the first of these boarding schools was right here in Washington. The philosophy behind the uh, boarding schools was expounded by uh, Lieutenant Richard Henry Pratt, who founded the largest of these schools, the Carlisle, Pennsylvania School. Pratt said, a great general once said that the only good Indian is a dead one. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that all the children there is in the race, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him, and save the man. This is a picture of the children at the uh, Carlisle School in Pennsylvania. Huge school. I have visited there myself. Interesting story, but I won't go there. That was the first off-reservation school. Second off-reservation school was in Oregon, near Salem, Oregon, the Shamawa uh, School. Uh, it was modeled after the Carlisle School for the indigenous children of the western United States, including Alaska. The first children to attend Shamawa were from the Puget Sound area, from this area. Opened 1880, one year after Carlisle opened. Marcia Small, in doing her master's thesis research, uh, used ground-penetrating radar to discover hundreds of unmarked graves at Shamawa, in addition to the marked graves. She said, our homelands are the places where we're taught everything, where we go to feel full and heal as indigenous people. For these children to be buried in an unknown land with an unknown prayer, I can't think of a more horrific fate. Now you think, well, Mennonites didn't do this. Well, think again. Um, the first of the Mennonite boarding schools was at Darlington in Oklahoma, Indian Territory, so-called, run by the General Conference Mennonites starting in 1880, 1881 to 1982. The first missionary was Samuel Howry. He reported this. We should, above all things, impart to these people instructions in the Christian religion to bring them to the understanding of the vanity of their customs and ways and to point and lead them to the only true and living God, the author of all true happiness and genuine civilization. 
Mennonites also ran the cantonment school in Oklahoma from 1882 to 1927. Emphasis, of course, on teaching the Christian faith and native languages and practices were banned. European American gender roles were taught, ways of life were taught, farming for the boys, uh, housekeeping and sewing for the girls. You see all of the, uh, can you believe this is a Mennonite school? There they are in military formation, all in uniform. What is striking to me is that this was 1881 and 1882 that these schools were formed. The large Mennonite migration to Kansas, just north of here, was in 1874. Only a few years later, when Mennonites were still speaking German in their churches and homes, they were teaching the Arapaho and Cheyenne children to speak English and punishing them if they spoke their native languages. could go on talking about boarding schools, but I want to shift gears to talk about liberation education for Mennonites. How do I get there from boarding schools? I'm going to talk about an analogy. When I worked with the Greater Dallas Community of Churches, a colleague of mine, Wendy Hodges-Kent, developed freedom schools. Uh, these were taught by African-American college students for uh, summer program, reading-based program of cultural uh, knowledge and appreciation for African-American children. And she was asked the question on several occasions, how can we white people help? And her response was, you cannot volunteer at the school. What you can do is provide money and white people need to create freedom schools in the suburbs to free white children from our own white racism. So I think that's the challenge for us, is not only to provide money for uh, cultural, language, spirituality, revitalization, but also to free ourselves from our own racism. And we can begin by asking, is Christianity a domination religion? The evidence is overwhelmingly yes. Genocide, cultural genocide, all in the name of Christ. I think there are three ways that Christians should respond. And I'm, what I'm saying here is that actions speak louder than words. The first is we must reject superiority. Second, we must free ourselves from our own racism. This is our work to do. And third, we must return lamb. Think of Jesus in the Jubilee year. Remember in Luke 4 when he announces his ministry and says he is proclaiming the, the acceptable year of the Lord. 
that's the 50th year when land was returned to the original family. And I know that you as a church are celebrating your 50th year, your jubilee year. We need to follow indigenous leadership. For me, that has meant Harley Eagle, Sarah Augustine, right here in this area, and Erica Littlewolf. Not that each of these people would claim to be Mennonite, but they have been leaders among Mennonites. And we need to search the history of Mennonites to find out our own story, including those who have been saying something against the stream. This is Paul Erb in 1974 addressing the um, South Central Conference of the Mennonite Church in Heston, Kansas. There is nowhere in the Mennonite records any hint that Mennonite settlers had any feeling that they're doing wrong in acquiring deeds of ownership for lands that the Indians claimed. Colonization was considered a divine mission. This is seen in the zeal of pioneering Mennonites in starting Sunday schools, building churches, and scattering evangelists over the frontier. They evidently never had a thought that they were stealing the land from the Indians. So this was 1974 when Paul Erb said this to a large gathering. I don't know that any actions proceeded from it. And today we have the dis dismantling the doctrine of discovery coalition. You already mentioned that, Jonathan. Um, various resources are available there. I did not put down the play, uh, which has uh, developed uh, in cooperation with Head and Company, uh, the play about the doctrine of discovery. And take it back to you, Juan. 